From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is Crosswalk. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, it's as vital a part of the good news as anything. But as we started into 1 Corinthians 15 last week, we saw how some of the people in Corinth were being persuaded to not believe in a bodily resurrection. As we jump back into the text today, Pastor Clay is going to walk us through the Apostle Paul's defense of the reality of the resurrection and why it's so important for all of us. That's it, just like you planned. Hey, the, the moment our worship becomes so programmed and so predictable that, uh, that, that we know everything's going to happen next, that's when we're in trouble. I'm all for just the Holy Spirit breaking out at any point, doing something uh, radically different in our midst. It'd be all right, wouldn't it? How you doing? Yeah? Really? How you doing? Life's hard. Trials, circumstances, difficulties. Women issues, physical issues, financial issues. Life's hard. Life's hard. I say it again. Life's hard. But there's the gospel. There's the gospel. We started last week talking a little bit about it, 1 Corinthians 15. I said then that's really what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. It's all about the gospel. And and and, and most specifically, or or most prominently displayed within 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the reality of the resurrection. Why the resurrection is so important, and as you're going to hear today, as Paul's going to begin to build this case for it, why it's vital that we understand why the gospel is so critical. But for our lives and for all those people out there who do not yet believe in the gospel or have not yet heard the gospel, Last week, we, we covered four ideas uh, from just the first four verses. Today, we're going to get a little farther, but uh, let's, let's just see where we get. We'll start with this idea. So we'll jump right into it. We're going to start with this idea this morning. It's the proof of the gospel. Let's talk about the proof of the gospel. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, hard, uh, hard copy uh, or electronic copy, which you almost certainly would have needed today had we not at least gotten a screen up. And this is a good reason to remind you to, to bring your own copy of God's, God's Word. Yes, uh, we, we, put the, we put it up on the screen for everybody's convenience. I understand that. It's, it's a great thing to have, but, but I just... I know I'm old school, but I just think it's a good idea to carry. They even carry hard, uh, hard copy, man. I know this. It's old. What are these? What? What? What do they call these pages? I don't. I don't know. But some of y'all, not, I'm sure, I've said this at some point in the past, but uh, I've been around long enough <clears throat> to remember this and to say to you that I'm I, that one of the things that I miss. Is the sound of turning pages of God's word. You used to be able to hear that. And now I know for y'all younger generations, you're like, what? Why? I don't know. I can just do that. The next page is there. I know we used to turn, and there's a beautiful sound. I'm just telling you, I'm just talking. 
Let's talk about the proof of the gospel. We're going to start in verse uh, 5. We went, went through 4. Last week, let's start in verse 5. <clears throat> and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then also to the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I, the least of the apostles, am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labor even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Yes, sir. Let's talk about the proof of the gospel. There is a, I would say probably an old saying. There's an old saying that goes something like this. If your faith uh, needs proof, that's proof that it isn't faith. Now, I, I understand that statement, and, and I want to say, as a man of faith, I want to say that there, there, is, there is some truth in that statement. I've never seen a man physically rise from the dead. With my physical eyes, I've never seen a man physically rise from the dead. But by faith, I believe that it's true. By faith, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The writer of the book of Hebrews, many of you have read this before, defines faith this week. By Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, proof of things not seen. So I understand that I don't have to physically see something to believe that it's true. However, that does not mean that your faith cannot have evidence. That does not mean that your faith cannot have proof. That does not mean that, that having evidence or having proof is in some way uh, bad or in some way diminishes your faith. In fact, I would say that if there is no evidence, no proof of a faith claim at all, that that could be reason to at least question that faith claim. For example, Hindus and Muslims believe that that all creatures, when they finish living their life, they come back as something else. Reincarnation, right? You've heard of it? Some of you have secretly hoped it's true. Reincarnation. And it, 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 how a person lives their life determines the, how the quality of the next life that they live. Were, were, were you mean and nasty to somebody uh, during your lifetime? You, you get to come back as a toad or a slug or something. I, I don't know. Now, there is not a shred of historical, scientific, 
empirical evidence of any sort to substantiate their faith claim of reincarnation. And yet, by faith, Buddhists and Hindus hold to their belief in reincarnation. Buddhists. <laughs> the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, by faith, believe that after the resurrection, Jesus went and visited uh, the Americas to share his message with Native American Indians. Uh, their belief is based solely on the, uh, the, the story put forth by the original creator of the Mormon Church, Joseph Smith, who claimed that an angel by the name of Moroni visited him in the woods and gave him some golden tablets or something that he translated into the book of Mormon. The, uh, that belief system, their faith, is based solely on one person's testimony, the founder of religion, a, a person who, by the way, prior to that, had, had gone on public trial uh, for being a con artist. And there is, has been, uh, let me say this first, there's not one shred of historical Archaeological, anthropological, scientific, empirical evidence to support that belief. And there has, in fact, been unearthed a pretty substantial amount of, of evidence against the claim. But by faith, Mormons hold to their belief of the Mormons. So, technically, that is faith, right? I mean, that's, technically, that is faith, but it is, it, it, it's faith, but it's a blind faith. It is what Josh McDowell famously called a check-your-brains-at-the-door faith. And that, that's not what makes you understand. That is not the kind of faith. Make sure you teenagers, you children, make sure you hear this, you understand this. That is not the kind of faith that God expects you to have or asks you to have. That is not biblical faith. It's not. For instance, in the book of Romans, in, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Watch this. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, because they're unrighteous, they, they, they suppress. They, they don't want to believe the truth. They don't want to see the truth. They're, they're expressed because of their unrighteousness. I, I want to live this way or I want to do this or I don't want to. That's why they do it. Watch this. What he says. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, the, the complexity, the beauty, the, the systematic operation that we see around us all the time, whether you're talking about the solar system or the ecological system or, or your, your 
vascular system. They're called systems for, for a reason because the design seems so obvious. In other words, the, the fingerprints of God are all over everything around us all the time. A person may suppress that, which is what Paul seems to indicate Suppress it because of their unrighteousness. But the evidence, the empirical evidence, and design is evidence, ladies and gentlemen, for the existence of God. So there is no reason, as Paul says, that there, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for, for not believing in God. And so it is in 1 Corinthians 15, there is there's really no excuse for not believing in the resurrection because God doesn't expect us or ask us to have a check your brains at the door kind of faith. There is a significant amount of empirical evidence beginning with, let's start with this one, beginning with the testimony of eyewitnesses. The testimony of the eyewitnesses. Paul begins to enumerate there, or list, um, incidences where Christ, after the cross, after his death, three days later and for 40 days, you know, biblically that for 40 days he appeared to various people, uh, Paul begins to, to list there those who had seen the resurrected Christ. Now Paul lists six resurrection uh, appearances. We know that there were ten, you know, there were at least ten. There are ten uh, recorded in Scripture. Almost certainly Paul knew of all ten of the instances. I believe he lists six because the six he lists are the ones that would be the most significant or have the most impact and the most meaning for the Corinthians. Remember, the, the Corinthians were big on, on names. We saw from way back at the very beginning how, you know, I call Paul Peter, I call Apollos, I call whatever. The Corinthians were really big on the original Apostles. They were really big on Peter and all the rest of the apostles. And so Paul starts out with this list and, and he, he says, you, you don't want to believe this resurrection? You don't want to believe me? We know some of them were questioning Paul. He said, well, you know, Peter believed in the resurrection and, and so did the other apostles. They saw Christ resurrected. And then he said something, I swear, it's almost an anticipation of an argument that would arise sometime later uh, against the resurrection. He says, he says this there in the passage in verse 6. He says, after that, after appearing to Peter, after appearing to the apostles, after doing all that, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Or not like fallen asleep in the church. Some have some, some some actually, actually died. One of the arguments that began to be raised at some point, I don't know when, but one of the arguments that began to be raised at some point against the validity of the resurrection was hallucination. The argument looks sounded something like, oh, you know, those, those apostles and, and those women and all, you know, they were all, they were, they were so devoted to Jesus, they were so about Jesus, they loved Jesus, Jesus loved them, and in, in their grief, in their despondency, in their, in their despair, they, they, they just they just hallucinated. They, they thought they saw Jesus uh, alive because they so wanted it to be true. And Paul uses 
used a very exact Greek phrase, intention here, to say more than 500 at one single time. He's very exact about it. At one precise moment, all saw the risen Christ. Now, it's hard to imagine even individual. 500 individuals, uh, one at a time, or at whatever point, it's hard to imagine 500 individuals having the same hallucination, right? But 500 at the exact same moment, having, having the exact same hallucination? Come on. And, and uh, I can't wait to be false today, because I want to ask him sometimes whether I'm right about some things he was feeling. But, but it, it's, I'm telling you, it's like Paul's, Paul doesn't, he doesn't even leave it there. He doesn't leave it there. Uh, he, he, he's like, hey, oh, and by the way, you don't believe me, right? You don't believe me? Most of them are still around. Why don't you go ask them? Go ask them if they saw the resurrected Christ. It, this is written probably somewhere around 20 years after the resurrection. Some had died, but he said, most of them still around. Why don't you just go for it? You know, just go ask them. Ask for the 500 people who had, who surely had nothing to gain and probably much to lose by sticking to this story. You go ask them. It's, it's, it's the eyewitness testimony. He, he, he then he mentions James. Which James is not, we, we don't know for sure. More than likely, it's James the half-brother of Jesus because James the son of Zebedee uh, was killed very early, uh, shortly after the, the resurrection. Probably James the half-brother of Jesus, who was not a believer in, in Jesus being the Christ until the evidence of the resurrection, what convinced him. He mentions the apostles again the second time, probably a reference to the ascension just before Jesus went back to heaven the last time. And then he mentions himself that and his eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Christ. But the point that's being made is that there is eyewitness testimony. Paul has just listed basically a who's who of the early church that had testified to the validity of the resurrection and bonus 500 extra people. Who, 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 even if you want to say that, that, we, that we've got a dog in this hunt, they, they ain't got one. Oh, that's terrible English. They've got, they, they've got no dog in this hunt. They've got no reason to stand here and say, yes, we saw him alive. We're telling you he's alive. It's the eyewitness testimony. In addition to that, we could also add this. There's the testimony of changed lives. You cannot ignore the testimony of changed lives. Peter and the rest of the apostles, man, they're hiding out in fear. They're cowering in fear uh, somewhere before the resurrection. But after the resurrection, they're out boldly in everybody's face telling about the resurrected Christ. James, Jesus' own half-brother, didn't even believe that Jesus was the Christ. Until after the resurrection. Paul, he, he, was, he was a hater of Christianity and a persecutor of the church. Until after the resurrection. Until after the evidence of the resurrection was so compelling. Until he saw the risen Christ and he knew that it was true. And it's, it's the power. It's, it's, it's what it can do. It's, it's, it's changed lives. It's a testimony of changed lives. And that, that testimony is, is still having its effect today in people. Whose life can be radically changed by 
I see, by faith, the risen Christ. And connected to that is also the testimony of the power of the gospel. Paul says there in verse 11, he says, whether it was I or they, himself or the other apostles, we preach and so you believe. We've gone out, we preach. I've gone out and we're preaching. The other apostles have gone out preaching. A lot of people are out preaching. But the point is, you heard this message and you have believed. Now, think about this. You have believed this message. Not by force, not by, not by coercion, as, as some religions, but purely by the power of the gospel. To convince you that this is true. And what is it that, that what, what, what is the message? Hey, 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 listen. How do you explain? How do you explain the explosion of the growth of the early church apart from the power of the gospel? Hey, hey, come, come, come join us. Come and believe that, that God that you can't see became an actual man just so he could die for you for your sins. So that, so that you could be adopted into his family. Then, then he went back to heaven. I know you didn't see him, but, but we did. He went, back to, he went back to heaven. Come and join us in that belief. And you'll probably lose your family over this. You're probably rejected by your family. You may end up in prison. You could even end up, but you could even end up dead. But, but whosoever will, let them come. <laughs> and they came by the thousands. By the tens of thousands, they came. How do you explain that? Except for the power of the gospel at work. In, um, in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 5, there's this account where the religious leaders are fed up with the disciples and all this Jesus. That Now they're just out boldly there telling everybody about Jesus. They're turning the city upside down is what they say. We've got to do something about that. And they've decided they're going to put the apostles to death. They're going to kill them. And, and there's this very highly respected religious leader by the name of Gamaliel. Who, who stands up in their midst and he begins to talk to them about what they're about. They're about to keep, arrest these apostles. They have arrested them. Now they're going to kill them. While they've got them, they're going to kill them. And Gamaliel stands up and he reminds them that every time that there's been some sort of man-made movement, as soon as the leader is, is killed, as soon as, as soon as the leader is gone, the whole thing just falls apart. Nothing, nothing come, becomes of it. Because it's, it's just a man-made movement. And then he says this in Acts chapter 5, uh, I think in verse 38. He says, so in the present case, so he says, so, in other words, just like in those other cases, so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. It's the testimony of the power of the gospel. And it's still going out. It's still changing lives by the power of the gospel. In Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 3, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So it's just a, a radical idea that, that God would do this and then he came back 
to life. And many convincing proofs. See, it's, it, it's, it's, the, it's the testimony of each one of those things. It's the proof of the gospel. Now, Paul's building this case for an important reason. Uh, and let's get to it real quickly. The second reason, today, or second idea today. And it's the problem if the gospel isn't true. We got a problem if the gospel isn't true. Uh, let's read it. I'm reading verse 12 through 19. Listen to this. Y'all all right? Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some, of you, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There it is. He plainly states what's going on. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Uh, your faith also is vain. Worthless, useless. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are, of all men, most to be pitied. We got a problem if the gospel isn't true. Listen, it's so blunt, it's so in your face, it almost doesn't even need any commentary, does it? But you know I'm going to give some. Yeah, let, me, let me just break it down this way. It was just like this. Here's, here, here's the problem. If there is no God, here's the problem. There can be no holiness for us. Paul's argument is, is brilliant in its simplicity. There can be no holiness for us. We've been preaching the resurrection. Y'all believed in the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And that's a problem because Christ's whole, whole mission in coming was to be, as a big theological term, to be the substitutionary atonement for your sins, for my sins. And the resurrection is the proof, that's, that's the truth, the resurrection is the proof that his payment for our sins was sufficient enough to atone for us. That his perfect sinless life was enough for the Godhead to accept that payment as, as a substitution to, to take away our sins. The resurrection is the proof of that. If there is no resurrection, that means that Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised... That means that his substitutionary atonement was not sufficient. And if a substitutionary atonement was not sufficient, you're still in your sins. There's no hope. It's gone. Which is the, which is the, the natural conclusion to this. There there's, there's, can be no hope for us. That's it. It's, it's, it's done. It's finished. If there's no resurrection, no, no hope 
of a future, no hope that things will get better, no hope that, that God somehow cares enough about our lives that he would be involved in all the stuff that our lives uh, find at different times. And so Paul says there in verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What's the point? What's the point if there's no resurrection? There can be no holiness for us. There can be no hope for us. Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. But if he, if he didn't rise from the dead, he can't bring us to God. He failed at his mission, and his mission was quite plain and, and, and quite simple. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Luke uh, chapter uh, nine, 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But if he couldn't even save himself from death, there's no hope. All right. I don't know if I get through all this, but I can't leave you on that Debbie Downer. Here, here's the third idea today it's the plan for the gospel. It's the plan for the gospel. Y'all ready? Listen now, listen. I'm telling you, it's good. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Come on. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All in Christ. Please understand. That's what he says there. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, the, in, in, the, in the sovereign plan of God, the, the Godhead is not in subjection to God the Son. They're, they're all co-equal. And when all things are subjected to him, when the son himself also will be subjected, the, the Greek carries the idea, will, be, will voluntarily, so to speak, lay this at the feet of the father. Will be subject to the one who subjected all things to him, so that, so that God may be all in all. It's the plan of God. Listen to me. Theology... 101. This is a basic truth that we need to understand about God. God is not a reactionary God. Do you understand what I'm saying? God, God doesn't, doesn't, oh, oh, my, oh, oh, I better do something. You understand? God, God, God is never surprised. God is never caught off guard. 
God is never scrambling to come up with a plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. God doesn't need a plan B. That's why we spell his name with a capital G. He's God. And he has a plan. He has a plan. I, 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 am, I am of the belief that, uh, that Satan thought he had thwarted this plan. I, I really have this idea that, that he really thought he had, he had thwarted this, this plan. I, I really think that he somehow figured that, uh, that, that if he could interrupt somehow that if he, if he could dive, change the direction of God's plan, that that would somehow mess everything up. But God's never surprised. God's never caught off guard. God's, God's never, it, it, just doesn't, it just doesn't happen, ladies and gentlemen. In, um, in Acts chapter uh, 2, you have this sermon by, by Peter. Where he says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This man delivered over, watch this, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. In this one verse, you have this mysterious interaction. And I'll be the first to confess to you that it is mysterious. But in this one verse, you have this mysterious interaction between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Listen, please understand... Those, that, the, those men that, that falsely accused him and, and illegally arrested him did so of their own free will. Those that, that mocked him and beat him and spit in his face did so of their own free will. Judas betrayed him of his own free will. Pilate condemned him of his own free will. Those who screamed, crucify him, did so of their own free will. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, it was always his plan for God the Son to come and pay the price to redeem me and you. And all who would come to Christ. And I want you to see in the text that God had a plan. God had a plan at creation. It says there in the text, we went back and we looked at the, at the text, it, it, it starts talking about Adam, and as in Adam all, all sin, he's, he's going back to the, to the creation. God had a plan at the creation. I, I, as I said a moment ago, I genuinely believe that Satan thought that, that somehow if he, could, if he could thwart this thing, if he could mess this thing up, and when, when Eve and Adam bought the lie and they, and, they, and they bit the fruit. They rebelled against God in that moment. In that moment, I genuinely believe that Satan thought that he had, he had upended God's plan. But here's what I want you to understand. I, 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 want, I want you to see this. I want to actually bring this up on the screen. Our enemy's deception, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand, our enemy's deception is no match for our God's conception. I want you to understand, God conceived this plan. This, this plan was conceived in, 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 the, in the council of the Godhead Whenever it was done, long before any of this. And there's, there's no upending God's plan. There's no changing God's plan. There's no need for a plan B. And I genuinely believe that Satan in that moment thought that, that maybe he, perhaps he could, he could uh, get the mankind to ally with him as he had done with one-third of the uh, angelic force, right? 
the, what became the demonic force. They, they, were, they were angels at one time. And he convinced them, hey, side with me. I, I, I am convinced that Satan in that moment, when he got them to, to follow him, they got them to fall, that he believed that he could get mankind to ally with him. Yeah, until God said this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I will make you and the woman enemies to each other. Oh man, that was not what I thought was going to happen. Your descendants and her descendants will be enemies and one of her descendants, this is the first messianic prophecy in all of scripture, the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, one of her descendants will crush your head and you'll bite his heel. God had a plan at the creation and nothing was going to thwart that plan. It was always God's plan that he would create human beings on which he could, he could lavish his love and goodness and on which he could, he could display his glory and his goodness throughout all of eternity to those made in his image. That was God's plan. That's what he conceived and it wasn't going to change. God also had a plan at the cross. Well, I, I, you know, I, okay, I, I didn't stop him back at the creation. But now, I'll, here's Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll put an end to this. I, I truly believe that Satan thought in that moment that, that when he, he killed Jesus or had him put to death, that that was going to be the end of God's plan. That somehow that would, that would finish the, the whole thing and, and, and that would be it. But listen, I want you to understand Satan was wrong in the Garden of Eden when he thought he could stop God's plan. Satan was wrong in the Garden of Gethsemane when he thought if he could put Jesus to death, that would be the end of it. And Satan was wrong three days later at the Garden Tomb when up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. You don't even have to be old to like that song. Right? It was, it, 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 he had a plan. He had a plan at the cross. Yes, men of their own free will did those actions, but God was, was ahead of them. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, here, here's the plan, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not the righteousness of ourselves, not the righteousness of something that we did, but our, the righteousness that is imparted, imputed to us as a result of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. God had a plan at the cross. And one more, God had a plan at the culmination. And, and notice I did say had, past tense. Now, now it's, still, it's still future for us, Right? But in the mind of God, it's already a done deal, folks. It's already a done deal. You see, we operate and live in time, right? We can, we can look at our past. Maybe we can learn from it. Sadly, some people want to keep reliving it or reliving their glory days or try and change something from their past they wish they could redo. But we can't go back there. We can't go back to the past. We can, we can look forward to the future. We can anticipate what might be our future, but none of that's guaranteed. You and I live in this moment and this moment only. That's not so with God. God created time and, and, and operates in time for us, but God is above it. He is over it. 
He is not restricted by time. And so God sees the end as easily as he sees the beginning. I know it's hard, at least for me, maybe y'all probably all can figure it out. Uh, it's hard for me to get my mind around how that works. But, but that's what scripture teaches and that's, that's the truth of God's word. That God sees it all. And, and so for God, the, the end, that description that I read a moment ago, all of that is what's coming. That he'll put everything under his, under his feet. Everything will come under subjection to God the Son. All principalities and powers, uh, the end of the enemy, the end of death, the end of fear and pain and suffering and heartache and, and uncertainty and, and, and all of those things that, that are associated with this life in which we live, all of that will be no more. And the longer, the longer I live, the, the sweeter those words sound to me where he says, and then comes the end. Literally, then the end. Not the end in the sense that that's it. There's nothing more. Oh no. Oh no. In eternity we will experience more. We will live more. We will, we will have more joy. More everything than we could possibly imagine in this life. But the end of death. The end of Satan. The end of all the stuff that comes our way in life. the plan of God it's always been his plan that he would redeem whosoever will that would come to him if you're here today can I say this to you have you come to Christ have you come to know him not simply to know intellectually about what the claims are who he is or what he did to not even just believe it intellectually but to leave it believe it to the point that it changes your heart and changes your life that's the plan of the gospel Christ came to redeem us he had a plan at the creation. He had a plan at the cross. And he has a plan that we will experience in the culmination at the, at the end. When all this is wrapped up, God's plan will be fulfilled. And if you know Christ, if you say, well, I already know Christ. Then can I just ask this before I close this morning? How many are you planning? How many are you planning to take with you to heaven? Because I hope that we all understand that you and I are part of God's plan to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth, to be his witnesses here, there, and everywhere, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that he has commanded us. And he says, I'll be with you all the way to the very end of the age. If you know Christ as your Savior, how many are you planning to take with you? How about that one? You know, we've been praying about that one. Who's your one? Are you advancing that relationship? Are you trying to, have you had them over for dinner yet? Have you had an opportunity to share the gospel or give them an iVite card? Who's your one? How are you going to reach them? Because this plan, I think perhaps the saddest thing I could imagine was if, would be as if you and I kept this plan to ourselves and would be unwilling to share it with those who so desperately need to hear. The Apostle Paul's argument was simple and yet very important. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't conquer death and the grave, then there's no hope for any of us. The empty tomb is as much a part of the good news as the cross is. As Pastor Clay said today, if there is no resurrection, there really isn't any good news. 
We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere to celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross-culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about a relationship, a community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person, real people who truly care, solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens, and the most energetic, fun, and safe kids program around. Find out more at crossculture.church. Cross Culture Church in North Raleigh, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.